Welcome to The Better Build, a podcast that explores the world of software engineering leadership and the people who are shaping it. Our guest today is Martin Provencher. Martin was originally a Ruby on Rails developer for over seven years before becoming a CTO at bus.com. He is currently a senior development manager at Shopify. Let's get to the episode. I'll just start by saying Martin and I know each other for what, seven, 10 years now. Initially, we met at a co-working space in Montreal called Notman House. Martin was leading the Montreal Ruby on Rails group as president of Ruby on Rails, if I remember correctly, and would hold an event at the co-working space every month. The pattern was you'd come see me and be like, hey, where's the projector? I'll get you the projector and you'd have your event. But that's kind of where we first met. We then reconnected when I joined bus.com as COO. About two years into the journey of bus.com, Martin had joined much earlier than I had, but we reconnected at that point. To start, Martin, you can do a quick bio about yourself, what you're doing, where you've been, and we can go from there. Sure. I worked at Atomkit Telecom when I started my career as an engineer. I was president for Metroid Ruby for over about a bit over five years. And which was super fun. Got a lot of connection, knew a lot of people in Montreal in the startup community. Then I joined Bus mainly as a CTO. I went before I went to a startup through either Hopper, and I worked a bit with PagerDuty, and I had my own startup called Gabber for a couple of months. You learn and you crash really fast. That was a good learning experience. It helped me a lot for Bus, even if it was a couple of years prior. And then since I left after six years, a bit of a freelancer. I work with Mission for a couple of months also, helping you guys on different things, serving some customers. And now I'm at Shopify as a senior development manager. Amazing. One thing before we jump off some of your past experience, I'm curious, I never asked you, your involvement in Ruby, Montreal Ruby, and not all engineers decide to do user groups or meetups, especially ones where people meet in person. I guess there's a stereotype of engineers being more introverted and just wanting to stay home and code. What was the attraction for you to get so involved in Montreal Ruby? And maybe you can talk about some of the things that came out of that that were good experiences. The first thing I can say to correct a bit what you said that most introvert engineer love to go to Montreal Ruby or similar user groups when there is only other engineers in the room. This is super fun because you can geek out when you get product people like you in the room, then you have to vulgarize what you have to say and you have to be a bit more cautious. But only speaking with other developers, it's fun also to get those connections. And when I started with Montreal Ruby, what was what, 2012, 2011? There was a lot of like things changing in Rails. When Rails 3 happened, it did break everything. So it was a lot of things was fun to communicate. And Rails wasn't like in their early days, but it was not the stable framework that it is today. The reason why I took over prison was a bit a side effect. Pretty much no one else wanted to do it. So I just defaulted to me, which I was happy to do because in my mind, even back then, I always wanted to be a CTO. What I did at Bus was like my initial goal. In my career, I wanted to become a CTO. And being a CTO is not about being the best developer. It's about all the soft skills you need. And Montreal Ruby was a really good platform as a president. To get that, I got a good network. I learned how to communicate. I learned how to do speeches in front. I learned how to motivate people to help you do some projects. Like we organized Rails Bridge, which was a training to learn people how to code. But during that project, 
like I needed help for a lot of people. It was like, like we had 50 participants, I think our, in our first version and we're expecting like eight. So like I cannot organize that on my own. So I had a lot of people helping me and like, how do you motivate people that you do not pay? Is some um, is a skill that I had to learn. Even just having people coming in front and speaking on a monthly basis, people who never organize a meetup don't understand how much effort that is to find speakers month yeah. over month. Month over month. Yeah. And just doing that, get a lot of that skill set that like when you're like the boss or you're the CTO, you need them again. From what I can tell, there was a really great community that was built within that user group. Did it feel like a real community? Yeah, the group was really tight. It was like super fun, like not only for the talks, because most of the time as, when you get like experience enough, most of the talks, you know them already, but connecting with the people in Montreal Ruby, people I like, I had good connection throughout the years. It was super fun. And this is how I found our best developer at Bus, right? The most experienced one. Found him while going on Montreal Ruby because he was in my network already. So it was an easy way for us to integrate people into the Bus family. Amazing. You've worked at very different sizes of companies, everything from bootstrap startup, you said lasted four months. That's a great journey. All the way to Hopper, PagerDuty, which is a massive company, public company. At Mission, we tend to believe that engineers work best in an environment that they love to be part of. You seem to be able to surf all of the different sizes of companies. Is that something that is specific about yourself personally? Do you find that there is a pattern that engineers tend to work best in certain environments? I would disagree with you because yes, PagerDuty and Hopper are like big companies today. But when I work with them, there are about 20-ish people. Like for PagerDuty, I was a contractor. Since I was a full-time employee, I worked with them. Before Shopify, it was Bust, the biggest company I worked in. A couple of scales bigger, right? I think we're about 10,000 people, 10,000-ish people. I have no idea exactly. And uh, Bust, you said you were 150. So it is like an hundred times more people. So for me right now, I'm discovering a new world that I wasn't really into because like I work with my telecom company called Telco Bridge where about 30 to 50 people throughout the time I was there. I think I was always the kind of person who loved the challenge of because what I feel is the main difference when you yeah, like in the bootstrap startup even when I joined buses you're fighting to survive all the time. If you don't ship that feature or you don't do that thing the company can actually crash. Yes, you get some rush, you get some stuff you need to do once in a while. I don't expect I do something at Shopify that I can crash the business in like a couple of hours. Like mm-hmm. it's a more mature company, mature mm-hmm. tech environment. Yeah. That it, it cannot happen, which is great. Yeah. And so you've hired a lot of engineers during your career. This question around hiring an engineer that's comfortable with these different types of environments. Is that something that you looked out for and how would you be able to tell? Is it just based on the experience of someone or would you consider hiring someone who's never worked in a startup to work in a startup because they had certain personality traits or said the right thing? How did you navigate that or was it a variable at all? So I think the first thing is not because someone never worked in a startup or worked in a startup in the past that they actually is someone who will thrive well in a startup environment. At least not in the teams I'm trying to build in a startup environment. So I'm not really considering that. There is people in my network can always ask what type of person they are. But what really comes to mind, what I'm looking for when I'm hiring someone for a young startup is someone who is not happy with the current situation. 
They always want more. They always want to do more. Not someone that you have to tell them what they need to do. There's great engineers I know who are in that mindset. They're awesome engineers. But in a small startup, you don't have time to prepare that much. You try to reduce at maximum the planning time you're doing and spend as much time as possible in the execution because everything is to build. Ruby always have been close to the startup community. Most people who learned Ruby wanted to learn it on their own terms. You have to go out and learn it yourself because you're motivated enough to learn it. Yeah. By working in Ruby, I can easily get that kind of filter that has just come naturally. Like you work with Ruby in the past, I know you're probably the kind of person I'm looking for. As you're hiring at Shopify, I presume you're also looking for different traits based on the size of the company and the teams that you're trying to build or that you need to build. At Shopify, it's very different because you have a more complex team. There's a lot of things going on. When I was at Bus, the time you can spend in recruiting, we do not spend day like on the strategy or like building code for the business. Hmm. So you have to compromise here and there. And I could have spent more time recruiting. But I didn't want to because there was other things I needed to do. So when you get a good enough person, you hire them, you add them to the teams, and you figure it out. And it works mm -hmm. really well in small organization like we were at Bus. At Shopify, it's different. Since there's like a team responsible for recruiting, and technically you can have more time to recruit because like you're not fighting to survive all the time, I'm less encouraged to shift the teams a lot to fit the person in because it will be to the detriment of the team at the size we are today. I'm saying that, but Shopify loves to just throw changes in the organization to keep us on our toes. Okay. Like I'm sure you showed the news early January, all our meetings got removed from, from our calendars. They did like a purge where they said, we're going to delete all the meetings. If you really need it, book it again, but probably you didn't need it. Yeah. Changes will happen and it will be forced by the executive. So yes. You need to still thrive on change and be able to adapt to change at yeah. Shopify. If you're not like, it's it's not going to work for you. You won't be happy at Shopify. At bus.com, you were able to build the engineering culture that you wanted to build. At Shopify, you're part of an existing engineering culture that's being led by the CTO, the VPN, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about the differences in the cultures and how even personally, how you're navigating that difference between setting the culture versus being part of a culture? When I joined Shopify, I had a good idea what the culture was before joining. And if the culture wasn't compatible to the kind of culture I built, in the kind of, which was the kind of joint driving in, I would have joined. Shopify culture is the one I built at bus for the engineering team at scale. Mm -hmm. The most important things are similar. It's Shopify is older. As more people, so a lot of the tools I would have loved to have at Bus were not available because we didn't build them yet, but they are built at Shopify. Can you double click uh, there in terms of what some of those things are? Like the things that were important are the same. What are those things? There is independent career growth for technical people and management people. Okay. And what's something I always wanted to build at Bus? You still feel a lot of ownership. You build something, you support it in, in production. The on call is on the team. So like the team and managing mm -hmm. own completely what we build. At Bus, I think everybody knew you as a CTO that was willing and capable to roll up their sleeves at any time and jump into the code, debug problems, et cetera. So you are very kind of hands-on keyboards type of CTO. Is that the reality at Shopify or is it because of the scale you spend most of your time managing and you're not coding anymore. 
think I could take a big detour to answer your question. And okay. I'll talk about how I split my time between what I call management, which is everything else outside of like writing code. I have two things like management, which is like managing people, recruiting, strategy, doing one-on-one -on -one with people, like people are my management and like code, like architecture, deployment, writing code, building features. So when I joined Boss, I was the only technical person. So I think I spent 90% of my time, 80% of my time writing code and building stuff. I was the only one, right? Then we grew, we maybe, let's say we grew to three, four people for five. And I was spending like 75% of my time writing code. When we got to that scale, it was, it was super strange because I got too much like 100% of my time managing people, doing management stuff, strategy and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it was not coding that much. I was pretty much writing code when I wanted to relax, which is a bit strange to say, but coding was my way of relaxing. And then we hired more people, but I named mid-managers in that point. When I crossed to like now managing through managers, it took over all the people management side of the things directly. Okay. I get back like 40%, 45% of my time writing code okay. because I had other people doing a bit part of it. Yeah. I was still doing a lot more strategy and things with you because we're a big organization. We need to yeah. aim a lot more. I was still coding at least two days every week okay. because I liked it. And it was mainly doing features that were either bug fixes or like things that got asked by different teams for internal stakeholders doing things that were not a blocker for the roadmaps. We didn't need a lot of meeting or syncing or description of issues on GitHub. I just knew what you wanted. So I just built it. And as I said a bit earlier, it was just really relaxing to me to be able to do those. They bootstrap their own organization or their own team at Shopify, most of them. So they add the technical knowledge of the, of the stack they built. Something I do not add because I'm relatively new to my teams. But since I joined Shopify, I have multiple line of code put in production already. So it's not I'm doing nothing. It's just like I'm not doing as my time coding anymore. But okay. my main managers are still coding a lot more than I do. At Shopify, it's expected for managers to write code. The Better Build is brought to you by Mission. Mission is an award-winning network of senior-level software engineers and product builders, backed by a platform that helps engineers continue to learn, grow, and connect. To get your team of fully managed, fully remote, and fully flexible software engineers, or to join our community, visit us at mission.dev. When we were at bus.com, we were in the office, right? We saw each other every day. We were in meetings together. We would do stand-ups together. We would do demos together. Now you're sitting in the suburbs of Montreal. I'm presuming you're not with your teams on a daily basis. How has that changed the way that you approach working with your teams? Where do you see that heading in terms of the companies continuing to operate this way? I think working remotely for engineers will stick for a lot of reason. And I think the main reason that I say is as a manager, you can be lazy or you can act processes or you can act flows when you have people in the office. Something that you don't have access to when people are remote. It's easier to share verbal information in the office just because people are beside yeah. you, but then you have no trace of that information. And I'm not sure if you remember when we were at Boston and actually we moved full-time remote because we were forced because of the pandemic. Did you remember like how easier it was for the engineering team compared to the other teams at Bus? So we had the necessary tools to work remotely already in place. We had GitHub for issue tracking. Mm -hmm. or PR and everything. Mm -hmm. And we were using a lot of Google Docs because we had people already remote full-time. Yeah. And also the team was encouraged to like 
If you want to work from home, you don't want to come to the office, just stay home. Most people like to be in the office, so they came to the office. So we add, I would say 90% of the thing we needed to be all remote. So we're just not used to that as individuals. Stealthy moving remote is way harder. They need to see people and they need to interact, right? That one-to-one relationship and connection is really important. I would expect those would be more inclined to go back into the office. But at the same time, if your manager is using screen time, how much time they spend in front of their laptop, you won't be able to manage people being remote. That's just always bug me. Sorry about managers recording, like how much time your mouse is moving on your screen. I'm like, why are you trying to reproduce how you manage people in the office in the remotely? Office. When how you manage people in the office is just wrong. What you should care about is what you're building and what you're shipping, how they do it. If an engineer ships everything I'm expecting them to ship, in six hours and they spend two hours with their kid because their kid is sick or something is going on. I don't mind what they need to ship and the impact they need to have is there. Why would I penalize that person who ship right. what the business needed? So when you get in that mindset, you become a lot more flexible into when you work, when you cannot work. That will work also in a lot of like mm-hmm. product. I'm sure it's working also data science. It's working. Yeah. I think when you have the ability to measure output and impact through data, it feels like it is possible to work remotely and you don't necessarily need to, like you're saying, base people's impact on time in the office, et cetera. Have you, has your thinking evolved around that in terms of what qualitative or quantitative measures you can use to get a sense of your engineering team's impact? No, it's exactly the same thing at Shopify and I was at Bus. I'm evaluating the output people as. Remember like with engineers, same thing with product is that the unit of work is fuzzy. You cannot count number of pull requests for emerging production. That means not too much. Like number of line of codes doesn't mean too much. There's some things you can measure. Like for example, if you, if your average PR size is above 500 line of codes, for your PR are too big and you should encourage a person to find a way to split their PRs in smaller unit of work. But it doesn't mean that like 10,000 line of code PR is bad. Because sometimes you update something or you run a big refactor and you do that. Completely agree. There are some vanity metrics that some people use to evaluate output. Similar to, I guess, marketing and sales have got a bad rap in terms of vanity metrics that don't really matter. Uh, but there are some data points that can give you the sense of real value being created, which is exciting. For example, I'm using GitHub API to just gather like at scale, how many PRs someone merged in a month, how many comments they made on PRs, how many PRs they reviewed, that, that kind of thing. And I don't really care about the number, but I know if I expect someone like a staff engineer, who should have a lot of impact for the others and the team in general mm-hmm. with a low number of comments with other PRs, like I will go be digging a bit for people right. to like, why are you putting, not providing more feedback to the others or using a different meme? Like what's going on? Because first of all, just I'm measuring GitHub, but they're doing Git using Slack. Yeah. Possible. If someone I'm expecting, like a senior developer as one PR in the quarter, doesn't look as good. People are like, why you have only one? Yeah, look at the good reason could happen. Could be on vacation, mm-hmm. could have been, they're working like on a lot of strategy or different things. Maybe they're working in a repo with another team that I don't add visibility into. A lot of things can happen. So mm-hmm. yeah, most then- KPI are fuzzy, but yeah. then you use your logic. If all senior developers have between 20 and 30 PRs, roughly speaking, mm-hmm. and you have one with 200, 
mm-hmm. can give you an idea of the impact they may have. Yeah, I like the way you describe it as fuzzy. They don't necessarily mean one thing or another. They just mean that you need to have a conversation and understand what's happening. And so there are signals that allow you to figure out what the what the root cause is, but they can be considered in a vacuum and they can be considered good or bad without actually double clicking and figuring out what's going on. Yeah. And we'll never ask an engineer to ship 10 PRs in a month. That mm-hmm. means nothing. You can use those metrics as a way to measure something which is fuzzy. For example, you want to be, if you have more important impact, technically speaking, you cannot measure your impact, your technical impact. That's not something you can put a number beside, but you can say like increase your number of comments per month by 10% or 15%. Like if I want, I can like triple my comments on GitHub like tomorrow. Can you just send a lot of small comments everywhere and then I'm going to achieve that goal. But just a way for a sec, if you do it in a meaningful way and use that, like if you want to have more impact with your team, you can use that as a baseline to see, yes, I'm going the right direction or not. And are these data points metrics that your teams have access to at a IC level? And do you coach your managers to use this data to have conversations and really support their teams? It's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. Building it for myself first. I'm building it right now in a way that I can actually use it for myself. And once I can use it for myself, you know me, number one rule is be transparent. Like I'm it's sure the team will see it directly. Cool. But at the same time, what I learned with those kind of is when you extract them, it just validates your assumption as a manager or as a team member. Like when you know someone has more impact than the others, when you extract those numbers, it's obvious that they have more impact than the others all the time. So normally people are not really surprised because I remember when we did it at Plus, we were using an external tool, a third-party tool, when we did something similar, and it pretty much confirmed what we were thinking already before seeing the data. So our gut feeling was right. It becomes less about opinion and more about data. And data is not always telling the full truth, but at least it's something that you can have a conversation around. So I completely agree. When we worked together with remote teams, we had a couple of people who were remote. Anything since then that you've picked up in terms of some like other strategies, tactics to be to be effective working remotely? I feel by working remotely is what most people don't understand is if you're not regularly present in public channels, public discussions, people sadly forgets about you. And it's mm. not something you do on purpose. It's just that you don't see someone's name coming back. And if I had one trick to give to someone who was listening and you're working in a remote environment, be present on your public channels. Be there. Let people hear about you. Mm. That brings so much value in your in terms of networking. One thing that we've seen at Mission is we had this discussion with some of our squad leads and tech leads One fun thing that they did was they would take turns each month using Google Maps to show the other people their country or their city. Just walk them around and be like, hey, this is a cool place to visit in Argentina, beautiful falls. And you get to know the people that you work with. And it's so impactful to to be able to create that bond when you're working with people remotely. You have to be very deliberate about finding the time to do that, even in a remote world. And to be honest, to add over that, I heard that when I was at Mission working with you. Mm-hmm. And until today, this is the best social exercise remotely that I ever heard of. Often you have that same three, four people speaking and the others being more in listening mode. I was just thinking 
as you were talking, you were making me think about how this is the first time that we're really taking time to talk, which is crazy. Like we worked together for four years. We used to be able to go for lunch. We used to go for really nice walks and talk. It's great that we have this time to, to have these conversations. You're right. I think since we came fully remote and then we stopped working with together and we didn't spend the time to have that kind of like discussion anymore. I did want to talk about the realities of working together between product and engineering, but you were talking about investing in that 10%. I'm sure in the moment that 10% seemed like a very low priority for me versus building something that would drop. I have revenue much more directly and quickly. Any further thoughts? So the way we work is work pretty much as one unit. It mm -hmm. didn't really, at, I'm not sure from outside that room, people knew who proposed what and who decided what. I don't think we we're like that when, when you started, but at some point we got enough confidence in each other, enough trust that like, it just become that we're like often thinking in the same way or having the same conclusion to problem. And I think this is one of the biggest key between tech and product, and you can add data and UX into this, is that you get to be in a world where you don't actually have absolute ownership. I was doing product stuff that was obviously in your expertise, mm -hmm. but you did let me do them because mm -hmm. you saw the value of having another opinion going there. And we're trying to use each other in a way that we have a better output mm -hmm. for the organization. I think that symbiosis, yeah. so the good word, yeah. or really well. That's the same thing I'm trying to build at Shopify with the multi-effect I have there. I'm getting there with him because for me, I feel the same kind of relationship. It doesn't hold mine when I'm doing things on the product side or the business side. I think this is always the best for us to succeed. For me, as the mini CTO, if you want, or like the, the, the most senior person in my engineering group, like I need to give longer term vision. They have an awesome team build, actually building it mm -hmm. to make sure they aim in the right direction. If your stack on the engineering side doesn't go the same direction as your product on the, the product side, you'll get out of conflicts. Like you should be aligned all of the time. You talk about like code debt or actually we started calling it product debt because actually I disagree it's only code debt. I think when you have something mm -hmm. always about the product, yeah, it's a term I'm actually to use all the time. Yeah, Just always ROI for each project as we said a bit earlier. Yes, we can have more technical and more product depth into our stack. But this means that we ship features 20% slower. If it wasn't the number one priority for you, you knew at the same time that if we don't do anything about it, it will be worse. You were really open all the times that we did so those refactoring projects. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of the people listening can relate to it. It's definitely very tricky, I'll say, especially in startups, I'm sure in business in general, to try to look into the future and understand investing in long-term versus short-term, it's always a tricky thing, right? And so as we progressed during the journey in Bust.com, we were able to start to make longer-term bets versus just trying to figure out product market fit, as we had multiple product market fits that we were trying to figure out at Bust.com. And so it was an interesting journey, but there's always that interesting dance between long-term and short-term. And often you try to do both at the same time, but it's mm -hmm. rarely actually possible. So you have to be careful about that. Yeah. I think one thing I was definitely like in the sense that you were very easy to work with, I'll say. And a lot of people question me about that because I'd say you have very strong opinions. But what I started to learn after working together for a little bit was you had this amazing ability to have strong opinions 
until there was logic that disproved your opinion. And like on a dime, you are willing to change your mind. And some people want to be right to be right. And they're just stubborn, but you wanted to be right because you believe the logic was right. For me, we're working to get the best output for the company and for the team. Bring a new variable or a new fact or a new thing that will make my logic not be the best for the team or your idea has a bigger impact than mine or a lower cost, why would I stop with mine if you can have something better? Yeah. I remember where I read that. If you're going to, if you're coming to me with another opinion, my opinion will win. If you're coming to me with facts, you're going to win. So that's always the way I was approaching that. Yeah. Because in the end, I wanted us to win as an organization. Yeah. I didn't want me to win. I wanted us to win. I've heard great things about Shopify from people that were there from the beginning. I think we saw it at bus.com at different points. When everyone is fighting for the company winning as a startup, the company surviving and making it to the next phase, amazing things happen, right? If you have that alignment. And also you see the discussion are way more constructive. Or if you get stuck and you say, okay, now how do we get unstuck from here? We're in an experiment. We just need to choose one by default. Let's try it. If it doesn't work, we can come back with mine and, and, and that's it. We said, let's try both and see which one is the best. Sometimes mm -hmm. you actually don't know. You cannot know before trying to experiment with it. So you do an A-B test. And I'm doing A-B test with everything. I encourage all my teams like you, I have an idea to try something, then try it. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Like you just go and challenge how we're doing things because that's the only way we can actually get better. I think you, you nailed it when you first started talking about the dynamic. I think it's that mutual trust. You have to build that trust. Over time, I think being open to to it. And I think also being aware that everybody's trying to do their best with the time that they have, with the realities that they're juggling in terms of their personal lives. Part of it is being empathetic to, to the fact that everybody's doing their best for the most part. Okay, Martin, I guess we can end it there. I feel like we can keep talking for a long time. It's, <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost therapeutic for me. We'd like to thank our guest for joining us today. For all of you for tuning in, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred listening service. Stay connected with us on LinkedIn and visit our website, mission.dev, for more information on our network and platform. See you next episode.